grab a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel, and uh, we've been following the story of God. We're going to continue to follow the story of God. I know I repeat the story every week, but that's because we're following a story. So it's almost like you're watching a TV series. You see the little recap. So the recap quickly is that God was there before creation. God created all things. God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, who chose instead of serving and following God with their lives to have their own kingdom, their own world. And as a result, sin entered the world. But God promised Eve, even in that moment, that he would provide a deliverer for them that would redeem creation. And we've been following the hope of that child throughout everything that we've read and looked at and done, whether it be the flood or Adam and, or, or excuse me, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who become the nation of Israel, which ultimately becomes enslaved in Egypt, and God delivers them out after 400 years, brings them to the promised land, uh, brings them into that land with Joshua. They come into the land. They're governed by judges because they refuse to uh, clear the land as they were supposed to. And uh, then we move from judges to where we are now, which is the time of kings. So. Title today is, How Do You Choose a King? Well, we are not choosing a king in the true sense of the word, but you'll see where I'm going with that. How do you choose a king? And today we're going to look across a chunk, a little chunk of time, and we're going to compare three different kings. One chosen by the people, one chosen by God, and one who has always been king. Okay? The question for us today is, what do we look for? In a king or a leader. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we are uh, this week. And we're going to look at, uh, let's look at verse 6 here really quick. Uh, When they came, or yeah, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, talking about Samuel here, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let me pray. God, your word, as always, is your word. I never want to take it out of your mouth. I never want to put my words into your words, Lord, because I, I, I want to hear too. I'm not trying to preach an agenda. I'm just trying to share what your word says and what you said to me. God, I pray that even though I'm holding a mic and even though I have the privilege of standing up here that Whatever is said today is something that comes from you for your glory and, and that I learn too. I know I get the opportunity to teach what I've learned so far, but, but I also walk out with notes on notes because you, you teach me even from your word as I'm reading. And uh, I thank you for that. I pray that's always the case. You're the teacher. I'm the student. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So anybody, y'all know who Susan Boyle is? Does anybody remember her? She was a... 47-year-old, unemployed, Scottish woman, kind of frazzled charcoal hair, boxy figure, uh, lived alone with her cat and was never married. Total obscurity, really, until in 2009. She walked on to the first episode of Britain's Got Talent and blew everybody's mind. Totally blew everybody's mind. Uh, if you've seen it... the, the you know, probably didn't see the show, but you, the videos went viral, to say the least. Um, but everybody was in absolute shock, and I watched it again. I was thinking about her as an illustration, and so I went back and watched it again for the first time in a long time. And just seeing everybody's face of absolute shock, and then it was over, 
uh, one of the judges, one of the women judges actually even noted that, that we should be embarrassed that we're shocked, you know. And what was she getting at by saying that? You know, right. They're totally judging on appearance. Now, here's some facts I dug up. You can take these for what they're worth. Uh, but in 2004, a study was done by the University of Florida that found for every inch of height, a tall worker can expect to earn an extra $789 per year. That means two equally skilled coworkers would have a pay differential of nearly 5000 per year simply because of a six-inch height difference, according to the study. Uh, obese workers are paid less than normal weight. Coworkers uh, at a rate of $8,666 a year for obese women and $4,772 a year for obese men, according to a George Washington University study in 2004. I don't know if that's true, but these are, these are the studies. In 2010, a study from Queensland University of Technology studied 13,000 Caucasian women and found blondes earn greater than 7% more than female employees with any other hair color. And a Yale University study finds employees pay a beauty premium to attractive employees. The beautiful, quote, quote, beautiful workers earn an average of roughly 5% more, while unattractive employees can miss out on up to almost 9%, according to the study. So now, you can weigh all that in however you, wherever you want. But the point being made is these are not just, hey, John did this project. These are like, you know, universities and whatever doing some significant and important studies to come to the conclusion. But we really don't need them, do we? We really know all that's true on some level. And so here's the point to remember. It's on the sheet back there if you grabbed one. But oftentimes we ask God to give us the desires of our heart and we go after the wrong things. But if we make him the desire of our heart, he will never disappoint us. We will never be disappointed. So I don't always give you an outline, but today there's a good solid outline for this. You have the people's king, the king's king, and the king of kings. So that's how we're going to walk through it. The people's king, the king's king, and the king of kings. All right? So let's start with why in the world are they looking for, come on, I get an amen over there. ha. <laughs> Love children, man. Say it. Say it however you want it. You're not hurting my feelings even a tiny bit. Uh, why are they looking for a king in the first place? First Samuel chapter 8. Um, let's back up just an inch here or two and look at, skim over some things. Verse 5. It says, The elders of Israel said to Samuel here, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us was it safe. Like all the other nations. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say, for they didn't reject you, but what? They rejected me from being king over them. So they did have a king. It was God. And he said, In demanding a king like all the other nations, they've rejected me as king. Y'all probably familiar with this line. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. With certain inalienable rights was the next line. Endowed by their creator. In God we trust, our motto. 
we have all these things that our country, as we all know, was stacked on. And if you know, as I'm sure you do, the story, America fled a king to come here. And be the people who did who birthed America fled a king to come here and have the freedom to worship a king, a true king, who now, and I'm not normally the guy, but it's just a fact, now we are starting to do the same thing and reject the king that we have because even these lines are starting to get challenged or erased. Instead, we've started worshiping political powers. And like, if my political power is not the power, the world's going to collapse. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Samuel warns these people that a human king is going to fail them. There in that same chapter in verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, look what it says. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. That's a great That's a great campaign, isn't it? Imagine running for president with, I'm going to take this from you, I'm going to take this from you, I'm going to take this from you. And look how they respond in verse 19. Oh no, but there's going to be a king for us. Verse 20. That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge over us and go out before us and fight our battles. So God says in verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice and make them a king. So that's how we get to where we are. So now, here's the people's king. Here's the people's king. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of uh, Appiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the other people. Very first thing noted about him, other than his lineage, he's wealthy, handsome, and tall. Like, that's it. Not a man is handsome. Taller than any of his people. Notice that he stands out from his people. He's not the tallest man on earth or nothing. He just stands above his people. Above them, more impressive than them. And you need to re- I'm pointing that out because you need to remember that when you see God's king and when you see the king of kings. All right? So God leads Samuel to Saul and anoints him. Samuel anoints him king. Uh, But though plenty of people see that moment happen, Saul goes back home from that moment and says nothing about it. Nothing about it. In fact, his family asks him what Samuel had said to him when he ran into him. And Saul, Saul says nothing. You think that's because he's humble? It's a coward. I mean, this guy is already showing cowardice and you'll see it in a second but samuel gathers all the people to announce saul as king they've been begging for this king and begging for this king and here he is he's going to present him so samuel gets all the people together but before he does he calls them out pretty hard he says in chapter 10 i know i'm moving back across quickly here but chapter 10 he says in verse 18 uh, samuel says to the people of israel thus says the lord the god of israel i brought you up out of egypt 
I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms who have oppressed you through all these judges and judges and judges. But today, you rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. That is such sad words. You rejected your God who saves you. And you said to him, said to him, see what he said? You said to him, not only did you reject him, he, after all he's done to save you, not only have you rejected him, you looked him in the face, more or less, and said to him, give us a king. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands. So come on, stand up, get ready. It's inauguration time. Your king is here by your request. Your king is here. Verse 21. But when they sought him, so they're all there, they're all ready for this big inauguration event, then first king, and they go to look for him, Saul, and he can't find him in verse 21. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord. So they, they go back and they say, okay, wait a minute, Lord, is, is, this, is there a man still to come? Is there somebody else? And the Lord said, oh, he's hiding in the luggage. I mean, it doesn't matter where he's hiding point is, the man is hiding. It's his inauguration, and, and he's hiding. And then, that, that should have done something for him, but instead, in verse 23, they ran and, look what it says, took him from there. That, that, that means they had to pry him out. Come on, Saul, it's going to be okay, man. Come on, man. Come on, you're going to be fine. Come on, get up, get up. Come on, you're doing this thing. You're going to do this thing, and you're going to love it. I mean, think about this a minute. This is their king. They're having to pry him out. It says, And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Remember that, by the way, when we talk about David and Goliath next week. All right? So, the people's champion here, taller than everybody, hiding in a hole and having to be forced and drugged out in front of the people. And verse 24, Samuel says to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. This is probably sarcasm. Maybe not. He might be saying, yeah, he's taller than everybody. But knowing Samuel and his anger at this whole thing, I have a feeling he's being a little bit sarcastic. Um, and all the people shouted, what? Long live the king. At last, we got our king. Like, he's taller than everybody else, but he's hiding in a hole. He's been chosen by God. Led, Samuel led him over there and anointed him king, and he goes home and tells nobody. Like, on the outside, sure, he's taller than everybody, but on the inside, this is a worm of a man. And you all may know people like this. And I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm just saying, you may know people like this. Saul starts out really good. I'm not going to read him, his whole thing. You can do it in your own time. He starts out really good, but despite warnings from Samuel, he continues to be an idiot. That's my language, but he continues to be childish and do stupid things because of impatience and 
lack of faith, he acts as Samuel and performs a priestly duty, which was forbidden to do, gets in trouble for that. Then he forces his exhausted army to march and starve themselves to the point of death just to get payback for him because he feels he's been disrespected. Um, ultimately causing them to sin because he starves them to the point that when they finally do get some meat to eat, they eat it with blood still in it. Uh, he ends up keeping the spoils of war when God tells him to destroy it and then outright lies about it and then turns around and blames the people for keeping it. This guy's a winner, man, on every level. Uh, but before we jump too hard on Saul or the people, what would you look for if you were choosing a king? I mean, you just got to be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to say anything. I'm just saying, be honest with yourself. I, I, do it too. What, what, what would be the thing that attracted you? What would be the thing that immediately turned your eye away? You know, and I can bring it somewhat to the modern day world and say Biden is old and decrepit and uh, Trump had orange hair. You know, that, that that's really where it all starts with both of them. That's, or that's the where it begins. Now, we can get in politics. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying we rarely actually look at people's heart to begin with or look at where their character is or what kind of person they are. But what, what would we have done if we were made king like Saul? Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. What would you have done if you were made made king? I'm not talking about hiding. You might be anxious for it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do we allow our stubbornness to hurt other people? That's what he did. Do we allow our stubbornness to hurt other do, Does our obsession with being right or getting payback hurt other people? People that we care about. That's what he did. Do we respond to disrespect by disrespecting others? Do we keep things from God? Do we justify it? Do we lie about it? Do we blame others? Why we can't do it or can't give it or can't provide it? I'm just saying. It's easy to put him in a book and make him some kind of wicked person. And he was. In a lot of ways. But he not a lot of what he was doing that's a long way off from what a lot of us get ourselves into. And I'm saying us. And God responds to all this by rejecting Saul as king. Which was ultimately God's plan from the beginning. First uh, Samuel 15 verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. So Samuel, Saul's trying to say, no, 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 you ain't going anywhere, man. And jerks on his robe and tears. I'm sure there's some broken heart in Saul, but there's fear. He's lived by fear his whole life. And some arrogance and everything else. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Man, that's got to stab at his ego. But God doesn't remove him yet. Now, this is a really important principle to remember. Because remember, we're looking at the story of God. So what does all this say about God? It's not all about Saul and us. God said, you're done, I'm finished with you, but didn't remove him. 
Don't assume that becomes, because things haven't changed, God is ignoring or indecisive. Huge principle to remember. Don't assume because things haven't changed that God is ignoring or being indecisive. Things had dramatically changed as of this moment, even though it wasn't seen yet. God sends Samuel on another mission. So we had the people's king. Now we got the king's king. Look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. I've got a little chunk here, so turn over there and read this with me. It says, verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil, go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God says, I provided my own king. You had, they had their turn. Now I'm doing it. I've provided my own king. Verse 6 says, when they came, that's what we read earlier, he looked on Eliab, which is the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, because the guy was a soldier already. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Literally the same things that they did with Saul. Because I've rejected him. Doesn't mean God hates him. Doesn't mean he's got some kind of sin and all he's saying. That's not the dude. That's all that means. That's not him. He's not the dude. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And we can go all day about how Samuel knew that, but he knew. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are they all here? Like, I know it's one of your kids. Are they all here? Um, and he said, There's, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Literally meaning, well, there's a younger one, but he's shoveling, you know, poop or something. I mean, it was a low job, lowest of low jobs. Can't possibly be looking for this kid. And Samuel said to Jesse, go get him. Because we're not going to sit down until he comes. We're going to stand right here and wait while you go get him. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So it tells you that he was attractive in some ways. But he's a kid and he's doing the most undesirable of jobs here. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. By the way, anointed means uh, anointed one is the word Messiah. So every time you see the word Messiah in the Bible, it literally just means the words anointed one or king. So the act of anointing one was to, to establish or reflect or show they are a king now. So that's what he's doing here. He's, he's establishing him as a king. David's just a boy. And this is probably about 10 years after Saul is already king so think about this a minute why did god choose david of all people why choose david back in chapter 13 samuel was speaking to saul and in verse 14 he says again something pretty important here he says now your saul your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? 
We're all familiar with that phrase. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard it. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It means a couple of things. It means that the desire of my heart is the desire of God's heart. It means that that I know him and whatever God's desire is, is also mine. Not saying I do what God wants. Not saying I obey. It's saying I want to do this. My heart desires to do what God's heart desires to do. We are aligned. That's one thing. Another thing, which I think is probably a little more applicable in David's case, because if you know the story of David, and if you don't, in the next couple of weeks you're going to hear it. David did probably some of the worst things you could, Well, actually he did. He pretty much did the worst things you can possibly do. I think if you go down the checklist of the commandments, he broke them all. Uh how can you look at David and say he's a man after God's own heart? I think it's because God, David's heart never turned from God. If he rebelled, he still went back to God. If he, if he sinned, he still went back to God. He never lured, he was never lured away. And the only king who was never lured away uh, to another God. He sinned. He messed up. Yes, we could say, you know, sex is an idol. We could say things like that. But he never saw it that way. He messed up. He sinned. He immediately became aware of it. And he returned to, returned to faith in the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned. He's the one who, who says that. So, I'll give you a couple of verses. First Kings chapter 11. This is years down the road when Solomon, his son, has turned away. And it says in verse 4, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So here you have this picture of David's heart is wholly true to God. Not perfect. In fact, he breaks every rule in the book. But his heart is true to God. Another verse, Psalm 138, 1. David wrote, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Look at this. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I love that. Before all the other gods, I sing your praise. Right in their face, I sing your praise. And we don't think about gods like idols and all these other things. Think about Islam, Hindu, whatever they are, other gods. That's what he's talking about. In their presence, I sing your praise. His heart never turned. And unlike Saul, though, David's anointing moment here is totally different. Nobody around to see it, except his family, who despises him for it, more than likely. Nobody's cheering. No crowds. In fact, he goes right back to the sheep. It's over. He goes right back to the sheep. And he's fighting for the sheep. He faces bears. He faces lions. He's having to defend these stinking animals all alone, all by himself. Nobody's watching. No praise for it. He even becomes a musician for Saul. You can read this in your own time. Uh, even becomes a musician for Saul. And he goes back and forth from the sheep to the kingdom to the sheep to the kingdom. It's almost like God's rubbing it in his face. You know, knowing though he was king, he continued to serve. Even Saul, who ultimately starts trying to kill him. Think about that. You have the people's king, you have the king's king, and then you have the king of kings. Isaiah 53, verse 2. 
He, the Messiah, the servant, the anointed one, had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, we despised him and esteemed him not. Could you come up with a more opposite description of a king than Saul? You know what I'm saying? That is the polar opposite. He was taller. He was stronger. He was bigger. He was whatever. This guy is everything opposite of that. Forgettable. Rejected. Cursed by God, we thought he was. Where was this Messiah, this king, this anointed one? Where was he born? In a manger, right? Where animals eat. Couldn't get much lower than that. He was from Nazareth. And the Bible says that people would say, what good can come out of that place? Backwoods nowhere. He said he came to be served, or not to be served, but to serve. And he also served those who would try to kill him. And ultimately those who did kill him. He faced his people's greatest beast, greatest enemy, which was death. And he did that alone. Laid down his life for his own people. And just like Saul, the people were attracted to the wrong things. John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the signs that Jesus had done here, which is when he feeds 5,000, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew. So they're ready to make him king, not because of anything he said or did, but because they made food for him. He made food for him. But he was the true king. And he was their original king. Remember where we started? They had a king they rejected. It was him. John 18, verse 33. Jesus is on trial, about to go to the cross. And Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So this is a Roman man, Roman soldier, asking him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about me? Are they saying that? Notice he didn't say it's not true. He just says, Is this what people are saying? Do you believe that? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom. What is it? The moment he said that, what does that mean? My kingdom. His answer, Are you a king? is a firm yes. Because he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting for would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Not from this world. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the world. It doesn't, he came to die for the world. This is the moment he's going to die for the world. He's talking about the world system on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's saying he's not from the world. He didn't say he didn't come for the world. He said he's not from the world. He didn't get birth here and grow up a normal person raising soldiers up to fight. And then Pilate gets that because he says, so you are a king. And I won't go into the rest of it, but it's made clear that he is. In Luke 23, verse 42, it says, I love this, the criminal on the cross beside Jesus, one of them, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. You don't say that unless you're recognizing that he's a king. Think about this criminal Guilty of what he's doing, dying on a cross, looking at a naked, bloody man beside him and calling him a king. 
And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He is king. King of all kings. Give you a couple more and we're done. Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As opposite as you can get from Saul. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. That's not just saying, I'm going to beat you in submission. That's saying you will recognize who he is and submit. The question is, is it going to be too late? 1 Timothy 6.15 Jesus, who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Paul wrote. King of kings, only sovereign. Revelation 19, John wrote in verse 16, On Jesus' robe and on his thigh, we mentioned this last week, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is and always has been king. And his way of ruling is to serve. And he didn't come in the most attractive and fancy ways. When it says he looks on the heart, man, he modeled that too, right? Totally modeled that too. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, if you haven't knelt, if you haven't knelt to him as king, don't wait. Like, do not wait for that. Maybe you've been judged because of the way you look. Maybe you judged others because of the way, you, the way they look. Maybe it's time you judge yourself. You know, maybe it's time you judge inside yourself and question the condition of your heart. Maybe it's time for a new king. Maybe you've been king long enough. You know, it all starts with repentance. That's what taking a knee means. I'm not king. You're king. Taking a knee here. I surrender. You're king. Can you do that? Do it. You don't need a moment. You don't need me to do it for you. Just do it. Tell him, I believe you. I trust you. I give you my life. You are king, not me. You can have me. Tell him. And as believers, we keep appointing other kings that just continue to fail us. And I I know this is true because I do it too. We need to acknowledge like daily that we already have one. We already have one. You know what I'm saying? Pause on this a minute, man. Don't blow over that. Pause on that a minute. We talk about dying daily, but there's also got to be a recognition that he is king today. That's why I love that line. It struck me with him saying he wins every battle. Like, he's king today. We got to do that, like, on a daily basis. If your faith is in Christ, then listen, Biden's not your king, and Trump ain't your king neither. Nor is the, you know, Reagan or whoever you wish was still king. Nor is whoever you hope gets it next. None of those people are your king. Natural immunity is not your king and the vaccine's not your king. I've heard all these fights for days. They're not your king. Your job's not your king. Your money's not your king. Your spouse is not your king. Your spouse is not your king. Your past is not your king. Your present's not your king. Your future's not your king. None of that stuff is rules you you only have one king the problem is we don't seek him with our whole heart because if we seek him with our whole heart he will never disappoint us 
Stand up if you don't mind, if you can, and we're going to do one, one other song. Let me give you a verse while uh, they're coming back up here. Psalm 37, verse 4. I love this verse. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You may know this verse. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love the way that's worded. You want the desires of your heart? Delight yourselves in the Lord. So then what are you going to get in desire of your heart? Him. You know? I heard it said like this. Make Jesus the full desire of your heart, and then ask for the desires of your heart. Or another way to put it is make God's wants your wants and ask for whatever you want. It's a good way to think about it. It's kind of silly, but it's a good way to think about it. Let me pray. Lord, I do pray that you change our hearts every day. I pray that not only do we um, confess our sins, not only do we uh, set ourselves aside, but, Lord, that we, we make sure and acknowledge, take a knee physically if we have to, acknowledge that you are king. Lord, let us never put other kings in your place. Lord, help us to be faithful to stop looking and judging based on the way things appear. I know that we all do that naturally in different cases and different scenarios. Let us get past that. Let us trust that you know people better than we do. We can't always see the heart. In fact, most times we can't, but you can. And the closer we stay to you, the more we can trust what we see and hear because we know you see what's in people's hearts. God, we ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.